Welcome to the next episode of the Purpose to Performance podcast. And I'm really excited about today's episode for two reasons. My guest today is the first startup business owner and entrepreneur that I've had on the show. And secondly, his business is in the green energy space, which is a sector that I'm a great supporter of. So today I have John Horsfield on the show, who is the founder and CEO of Diode, a startup providing faster and easier switch to electric vehicles. He's originally from Grimsby, now living in London, studied business and marketing at Sheffield Hallam University. John started out as business development at United Biscuits, a natural salesman. He quickly rose to become the business development manager before switching to become national account manager at KP Snacks. From there, moved on to product design company, Joseph Joseph, before making quite a significant pivot into the green energy energy business when he joined startup Podpoint in 2015. Uh, soon became head of sales for Home Charge Fleet and Leasing Europe before striking out on his own to found Diode Energy in 2019. So welcome, John. Hi, thank you. Great to have you on the show. Really excited to get into Diode and the green energy space. Yeah, looking forward to it. Excellent. So I just gave a quick overview of your career uh, without diving into too much detail, I'm just intrigued, you know, was there a, a clear plan post-university? I would love to say there's a clear plan, uh, but as usual, life gets in the way a little bit. So when I started applying for graduate roles, uh, it was pretty much the height of the financial crisis. So optionality was removed to some extent, but other ones sort of presented themselves. So I did a placement year with United Biscuits at the time which gave me a bit of a footing to get onto the graduate scheme or at least into the assessment centre at the time. It was never really a burning desire of mine to actually move to London, let alone go into FMCG or snacks even. You know, it didn't, doesn't really make me tick quite like a biscuit, but other than that. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I, I very much fell into it and realised quite quickly that the training they give you in that space is, is second to none. You know, that is what they're renowned for. So embrace that wholeheartedly, uh, but expectedly got a little bit bored, a little bit uh, itchy feet and started to look around and doing different things. Mm. So then you switched into uh, product design, which I guess was a response to that. I'm not happy here. And that was an opportunity. But then moving into a startup from, you know, fairly big FMCG Mm. and the green energy sector, was that a conscious decision? Because that sounds like quite a significant change of environment. Yeah, the, the conscious decision was very much about moving to a smaller, more dynamic company, uh, less about product design or anything in that space. The company seemed quite interesting, quite cool. Uh, they were doing some interesting stuff. Uh, so when I joined them, it was very much about the type of business that they were rather than what they were doing and how they were doing it and all that sort of stuff quickly realized that I could sell anything technically, but I sell things much, much better when I like the product, understand the market, have some kind of affinity to that space. And I realized quite quickly that I didn't have that. Uh, I did well in the role, but it wasn't really something that was ticking many boxes for me. Uh, So I did about 18 months there and then started looking actively for my next role. Um, But it was very much 
starting to move into the more startup space because that was always something that was at the itch at the back of my uh, head to, to do, really. Mm -hmm. So Joseph Joseph was an introduction to a smaller, mm. more entrepreneurial environment from, from the FMCG. What then led into PodPoint? What prompted that? Um, to be truly honest, I was sat in bed and I was swiping on a job site, much like you would on something like Tinder, uh, and a job came up and I was intrigued by what it was. And the truth is, at the time, I thought I'd experienced what a startup was. At the point where I joined Joseph Joseph, there were about 50 people. It had been established for probably 10 years at this point, but obviously had had, had some exponential growth at some point in that process. But what I realized when joining PodPoint that I, I'd not experienced what a startup was at all, like the chaos that ensued was, was a big thing. But in terms of what really drew me to it was the space they were working in. It was one of those points where in 2015, roughly when I joined them, electric cars were your G whiz that ran around, you know, that tiny little looks like a, a model kit car or something. Uh, and nothing really else. There was a Nissan Leaf kicking around, the Tesla Model S had just sort of poked its head up, but nothing mainstream. You could probably count the amount of electric vehicles on the road, you know, in, in the hundreds at the time. And that really interested me because I saw I saw something in, in what was happening. I was very much inspired by the leader at the time, uh, the CEO, the founder of PodPoint, um, very much like what they were trying to do. Also knew there'd be a lot of challenge in there. So what I'd experienced to that, up to that point was selling a relatively established brand into a very established brand. So for an example, in um, United Biscuits, it would be a McVitie's product into Asda or Tesco or um, you know a spa or Nisa or whatever. In Joseph Joseph, it was selling into big department stores. I appreciate they're now on their knees now, but at the time they were pretty strong. So I, I didn't really see too much challenge. You were looking at an aisle within a, uh, some kind of shop and you were looking at how much space you can rob off the competition. And yes, you get some wins in there, but for the most part, it doesn't really give you too much. Whereas what I was looking at in the green energy space was this just vast expanse of what could be. And that really interested me. So when you joined PodPoint, I mean, PodPoint was launched what, about 2009 2010 you went in at 2015 mm. what was the where was it at as an organization how, how established was it how big was it so the truth is it wasn't it was about 30 people when i joined um but it was very much riding on external investment very 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 little revenue streams very little process structure people structure any structure any real accounts working with us or anything like that and and i think that was that was part of the learning curve I had. You know, I, I was that person who turned up in a shirt and trousers on, on my first day and people look at you like a, some kind of unicorn work, walking into the office because <laughs> everyone else is sat there literally in whatever they want to wear. And that was kind of the first little baptism of fire. And the second one was realizing people were on such different planes. You know, you would speak to a company uh, like a, a car manufacturer, Volkswagen Group, for example, one of the biggest manufacturers in the world, and we're telling them from a startup position with 30 people that it's a bit of a a load of people sat in a room, not really any coherence between them, telling them what 
what they should be bringing to market in the UK and how they should be doing that and all that sort of thing. So it was, it was a really interesting learning curve is the only real way to put it. And then when we started winning things in that space, obviously you start to build processes on the back of that. And a lot of that experience I was able to then transpose to what we're doing here at Diode because there's there's a want to have everything in place straight away, all the processes, everything you know, perfect. And then what you realize is that the customer dictates what processes you need uh, and you get better and better and better at managing them over time um, rather than trying to put them all and foresee everything. But yeah, it was a great experience. I'm intrigued by this learning environment because, yeah, you've got this bunch of bright, entrepreneurial, energetic people. But as you say, you, you, you're kind of making up as you go along. What was the learning process? Where was the knowledge coming from? And how did it get disseminated in the organization? It's uh, a really good question, actually. The The learning process was hugely fragmented. So you could join the company and you could have the best induction possible just because you were in the right conversation at the right time with the right people. Or you could be left to your own devices entirely because of the absolute opposite. So there wasn't really an induction or kind of a a landslide of of knowledge that came out. But I was very lucky, um, lucky as well as unlucky, some would say, that I reported directly into the commercial director and also the CEO when I joined. Um, So what I meant is I spent a hell of a lot of time with the commercial director that is from a similar background to me. So she was, I think, the commercial director um, as a title, but at Britvic. Uh, so she launched Fruit Shoot and all that sort of stuff. So we could talk from a very similar language and and start point. Um, and the CEO was is an engineer, but he was an entrepreneur and he was quite eccentric, is, is fair to say, but very, very, very knowledgeable. And I realized that very quickly that I was getting massive exposure to someone that had this vision and knew what that vision was and had a wealth of knowledge. Uh, and I just happened to be going to a lot of meetings with him and starting to understand what people wanted to hear and how you should say it and to be fair what you shouldn't say you know he's not perfect in that in that respect and neither am I but it was just that that was my perfect storm of of learning so I had a steep learning curve of three to six months uh, and you know there were funding concerns were funding rounds that went through that process and then the contract started to fall in. Um, and that was that was kind of the big turning point for both the company, but also what I, what I was doing there specifically, because many of the contracts I was uh, tasked to bring in uh, were what we were leveraging investment on as well. So I ended up in this space where I had to just absorb as much knowledge from everywhere, bring as many of these contracts in place, and obviously try and commercialize them in quite turbulent sort of environment it was chaotic to say the least there was zero structure but that for me was great because I'd come from United Biscuits which is predictably quite corporate but also quite lax in the same respect I mean we did hours that were nine till 4 30 if you were there at 4 31 the place was a ghost town as a flip of that I went to Joseph Joseph kind of expecting quite a uh, you know a, a bit of a buzz and a bit of a thing and instead it was chained to your desk from nine till six and all that sort of stuff. And if you walked in at 9.01, there would, you know, death stairs across the room and all that sort of thing. Whereas Podpoint just had no rules, you know, no no rules at all. So it's, it's such an interesting cultural learning trip going into a startup. And it also brought me, you know, lots of ideas of 
again, what I should transpose over to diode and what I shouldn't definitely, uh, <laughs> I should leave out, let's say. Interesting. So we'll get on to diode in a moment. I mean, the, yeah, yeah. the one question that just springs to mind, because you talk very descriptively about the, the divergence of the culture or the difference of the culture between, you know, FMCG, Joseph Joseph, and, and you said it was chaotic in PodPoint. What was the thing, the catalyst that that held it together that made people feel connected and a part of something? I, th- I think, interestingly, also the chaos, which was kind of fascinating. So the culture that the company did not pay well uh, at the start, at least it didn't pay well. It had very little benefits outside of biscuits on a Wednesday and cake and all that sort of stuff and a free beer fridge, which was a big draw. It hired quite young. So the average age when I was there was probably, if you took the directors out specifically, it was probably sub 30. You found a lot of people had moved to London, didn't have many friends, and their social scene and their work scene all merged into one. And people stayed for that exact reason. So it became the chaos that everyone knew and loved and your social life and your work life and kind of everything else. And they rode that very well for quite a long time and clearly now being purchased by EDF and things like that. I'm very sure that a lot of that has now disappeared. But at the time, that was a really great thing to have. The culture mm-hmm. was such, such a draw. Did vision play a part in that, in that people were wanting to join the company, not just because it was a startup, but because it was a startup in in green energy and electric vehicles. And it was, if not cutting edge, leading edge. Yeah, I'd probably say no at the time and yes now or or, or yes in the last couple of years so at the time it it was trying to sell a bit of a a, a dead horse to people they didn't understand what it was people we were trying to get in I kind of alluded to were were typically fairly junior which meant they had such a widespread of of different uh, experience from shop work through to marketing agencies through to you know anything really in a different sales role so it, I think that's probably the right way of putting it. It's, it's just there's no really one way of crossing it. <laughs> okay, so then you're in this chaotic, fast-growing environment, learning an awful lot, uh, quite an inspirational CEO and, and team, you know, investments coming along. Then you decided to go and do your own thing. Which came first, the, the desire to launch your own business or, or the idea for, for Diode? So definitely the desire to launch my own business. That's, it's, it's probably ingrained in me from my parents, but for good or bad. They've run businesses their entire lives. And obviously I was in that around, around that, around the chaos again, around problems and, you know, working out different ways of doing it. And also the, the good, the bad and the ugly parts of it. So that was definitely a thing. I explored different things at university. I had... <laughs> I had this this knack of coming up with these ideas, had no way of executing them, you know, the, the, these great, illustrious ideas, and then realizing a few years later they'd kind of been done. Uh, and I'd got as far as you know, designing a logo for it or whatever at the time. I didn't, I didn't really know what to do. So uh, it was definitely a uh, almost a chore to join my first job. I went into that thinking, I know everything. I don't need this. I don't need to work for someone. I can do this for myself. And about a month in, I realized I could probably do with the experience of working with someone, getting the structure and understanding how a business works before trying to do it myself. And then when it came to, to actually making the jump, it was just kind of the perfect storm. You know, over working for 12 years, I'd managed to save enough money to, to keep myself going for a little bit. 
um, I had, if I wanted to leave, I had a, a non-compete clause that I had to sort of sit out and wait. So I used that to go traveling. As I say, it was a perfect storm. It was the market forces were coming together. You know, no one saw COVID coming, which is a topic we can definitely go into. because It's a really interesting one. Um, but other than that, it was it was something where the indicators in the market were definitely saying that things are going to go electric. The infrastructure in the UK and you know globally, European-wide, needs a lot of work. Uh, and there was definite space for a lot of the stuff I was doing and, and have now transposed over to diode. And to be honest, the the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back was conversations I was having with clients. You know, I was going into these conversations and realizing that they didn't want one single provider anymore. And this was 2017, 2018 sort of time. And realizing that you can't really do that from the position where you're working directly with one manufacturer. And that was part of that. And, you know, ultimately it, it was taking that risk. So I took it and so then here we are. <laughs> so you had that ambition, that innate desire born from your parents about having your own business, starting your own business. From what I read there is you saw a market opportunity from, as you said, those conversations you were having. From that was spawned the idea of, of diode. Mm. How did you get it off the ground? How did you form the team? Just talk us through that. Very early stage. part. Yeah, so uh, it, it's not been smooth sailing, uh, as I'm, I'm very sure any entrepreneur will tell you. But if you're looking at it from an outward position, it, everything looks like it just goes like that. Uh, and there's a, there's, a, there's a lot more that goes behind it. I Yeah, we launched it in 2019. Uh, I launched it with a friend from university. So we've known each other for a long time. He wanted something different and saw the opportunity that I was working on. And we decided to sort of collaborate and move on from there. Um, we, when I say launch, we launched a website in August. We worked with a few companies, just helping them very much hands-on, one-to-one consultancy, really. We, uh, we then got to January, had a good pipeline of leads that were sort of all propped up. And then you heard sort of murmurs of what was happening in, in China and around the world around coronavirus, which was, uh, an interesting time. So come March, obviously when lockdown, everything was enacted. The truth is we had two options. So one was we could go back to working. So at that time, strangely enough, the electric vehicle market remained pretty buoyant. Um, People weren't investing, but the the personal sale or the salary sacrifice or company car adoption of electric vehicles was still continuing. So we had the ability to go into different companies. I was offered a few different roles, uh, just interview stages and all that sort of thing, but decided it was the wrong thing, decided it would be the easy way out at the time. And it was actually part of how we, we started to bring the team together was a contact that we had at the time had set up an EV startups group. Uh, so just any startup in the EV sphere. Um, because of uh, COVID and all that sort of stuff, no one can really talk and it's very siloed. So we decided to meet on a monthly basis. And part of that was pitching to each other. Uh, and one of the other co-founders, so the three of us, uh, pitched his idea. And I realized there was a small crossover of what we were doing, but a big skill set that he could bring in. Uh, so we started talking about essentially merging and, and joining forces. And that was that was what we did. Um, and then we went on to win an Innovate UK grant, which was pretty much a turning point. So it just gave us funding and gave us some manoeuvring that we could actually do. And that manoeuvring helped us get to a position of launching our beta position, which literally are, as we are now, um, along with a funding round that we did uh, in May. It sounds like that grant was was key. And well, 
won the think tank where you got to to meet the other partner and yeah. merge those ideas. And I guess that was the the initial formation of what is now the diode vision and the business mm. plan and everything else. And that and then the funding came, which is usually one of the most challenging parts of the uh, of the startup. How much work had you done on the business plan and the strategy when you went in for that funding? And, and did you expect to get it? Poor. Uh, we we've done a lot at that point. We we did we did a hell of a lot. So what what we really focused on was essentially uh, speaking outwardly about what we were doing. So we were working to spread the word with as many strategic partners as we possibly could. What that meant is we got some speaking opportunities. We did some online forums pre-COVID. We did some in-person ones, and essentially just got the got the business to a point where we knew what we wanted to do with it. So basically what we had to do for the grant was put a lot of legwork into it broadly. So we had to pull together um, reams and reams and reams of documentation. The question really was about, did we expect to get it? After putting all that work in, we thought we had a shot, but ultimately there's there's a high, high subscriber rate to these grants. I think there was a 6% pass rate or a 6% success rate for this grant. Uh, obviously, so we were very, very lucky. When we got it, what we did realize is that these grants are not really set up for startups. That was the biggest challenge we found that came out of them. So, uh, albeit this one gave you a lump of money up front, many of them make you pay for things and then claim the money back like an expenses process. So managing cash flow was a really big issue out of that. The the process was rigorous is, is the easiest way to put it. Mm-hmm. But that enabled you to then get on and, and actually develop the platform, which is the the hub of of the diode business, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And it, it, to be fair, it enabled two things: it enabled us to do that, but it also enabled us to then go for proper funding um, down the line as well and get evaluation because they were looking at something that had already had a footing. It was already, you know, half of their money is not going to get absorbed straight into building something, but it will be to kind of push it out and start getting to the scale up process. So that was really the bit that we we won on from that part and and to be fair the grant was a it was a direct result of covid it was one of the covid uh, well it was a support package set up by the government to to support innovation in startups that were obviously going to struggle in this space at this time because of covid so it was a it, it was quite a silver lining for us in in weird ways covid it's been a long process but taking us into that funding at the start was it was a really key part for us mm-hmm. You know, you're what two and a half years in now. Platforms built. You got those business leads. You're out there in the marketplace. What, what would you say as as the the CEO of this operation? What's the biggest learning for you? Oh, um, I think the learning for me is everything. Um, <laughs> you. I, I personally had a tendency to to go into a business, see the business doing well, look at that and think I could do that. And the truth is, there's a hell of a lot that goes behind the scenes that's unseen to everyone else that the founders, the business directors, the CEO, whatever, will we'll manage and go through. I think one of the big things in that was to make sure that you 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 can portray your vision externally. Because if people can't get on board with what you're doing, it's really difficult for them to do it. So you need to you need to get a sales pitch going. You need to understand and believe it yourself. 
and you've got to start sort of living and breathing what you're doing so everyone you're talking to get really comfortable with speaking about it to other people uh that was one of the biggest things that i had to overcome at the start was i had this idea uh i'd kind of developed it into a business plan and, and a concept and i was kind of i was worried or scared of, of talking about this externally to people and it was such a big step to do things like change my linkedin profile and all that sort of stuff but that that actually when you start doing it you realize that people overwhelmingly people are very supportive of what you're doing will try and help you in different places clearly if it's a sales process it's a sales process there's no there's no point in getting upset about someone not being responsive or someone saying no you know that that's that's pretty much the worst thing that can happen someone can say no yeah i think that's a couple of things that i found Mm-hmm. Where are you at in terms of the the people side of the business and scaling it up and and bringing other people on board and designing the culture that's that's going to get them into the diode mental state? Yeah, I, I think so. With there's four of us now, um, we I think you have to start the culture part from day dot. I don't think you can force a culture at any point. You can obviously try and make some turns, but it, it's fundamentally what the core part of the business, what it starts with, how they build it. So we do that consciously. We think about if we're doing, uh, if we're trying to recruit someone, we try and think about how we want that person to fit into the team and all that sort of stuff. So it's really important. We're a little way off scale up. We, as I say, we, we just launched our beta. We hope that that will start getting traction. We know we've already got three launch partners that always helps. Um, but from that point, we'll have to start thinking about scale up of employees over the next six months. Okay. And then I was just going to talk about briefly, we worked together briefly at the start of the year in, in a short coaching program. Mm. What were your expectations and goals going into that? I've never been comfortable with the concepts of external help for no reason, but my own probably insecurities or whatever it is. And I went into this thinking, maybe go into this with an open mind. So without any rigid expectations of what the process would be, try and go into it with an open mind and see what that person can help with, you know. And I think one of the big things and the big draws for me working with you specifically was I've always looked up to people that have different experience to me from an age perspective, from an experience just in work perspective, from a position in a company. Something something that I've felt has always been really useful is having a manager, as an example, that is uh that is good, you know, that that you can turn to that would hold you accountable for things, but also train you and coach you and all that sort of stuff. And I think what I realized coming out of it was that the coaching aspect is a big, big point of that management. It's being held accountable, but to yourself essentially and helping you externalize lots of things out of your head and go through and navigate through things that you you can't really do by bouncing it around your own head you've got to externalize it and get some some thought thought um around it i don't think you can really understand what it's what to expect until you're doing it uh and then you start working through a specific issue you know for example we work through the the venture funding side of things. And that was a really big step for me. It's something I'd never done. Obviously, you'd worked on different parts of things like that. And it was really interesting to see your take and understand what what I need to be thinking about and try and just peel back the process a little bit. Yeah, because I mean, my recollection of that is that it wasn't on the agenda when we first started talking. And actually, 
you weren't convinced that that's what the business needed and, and you, certainly your partners weren't necessarily on board. So talk us through how, how your thinking changed and that part of the process. What we'd all sort of subscribed to internally was the Innovate UK funding could get us to beta testing and, uh, and get a foothold in the market, move into a position where we can get a stronger valuation and then start going on from there and deploying that capital. Following conversations in, in our sessions, it, it made me start thinking about actually, if we can get the valuation now for one, why would you not start the process? So will you significantly move your valuation from say now to six months time where you might be struggling for cash? Uh, or could you land something in between, which is what we end up doing? But it was just a, it was an exploration point. And, and I think in truth, it was something that I wasn't comfortable with. So like anything, and most people, you put that on the back burner over there. Uh, it's that admin task you never really want to do. And what you realize is it's not just an admin task. Raising money is a full-time job for however many months you're doing it. Uh, I think we did, so I did 50 something pitches to different VCs, angels, and follow-on meetings on top of that. And um Lots of really interesting stuff, a great learning curve for me. I did need a little prompt to start start thinking about it logically of, well, what happens when summertime comes roughly and you, you do run out of that, that grant money. That was kind of the start and the planting of a seed and, and many of our chats then obviously navigated into that space and navigated that world as well, which I found actually very enlightening because at the time I'd seen this, this like mythical beast, you know, this fundraising 101 whatever it might be and it's a badge of honor that many people wear isn't it yeah there was a realization in one of our discussions when you as you say you'd step beyond that mythical these people are gods how am yeah. i going to do this am i worthy etc there's a moment of realization that actually all you're doing is just pitching your business just selling your business exactly the same that you talked about getting comfortable with pitching your business to potential customers and suppliers and partners. And essentially, when you yeah, strip aside those limiting beliefs, those preconceptions, that's what you're doing when you're going out for funding. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right. I, I think I, I, I realized it was a sales process. Uh, and I realized that I'd been doing a sales process pretty much since I started working. And I think when those two things slotted in and it was like, well, now you need to, now I know that process. I need to develop a pitch that's compelling. I need to, I need to pull on different people that have that experience. I need to understand how they did it. I need to understand what they did wrong, what they did right. I need to, I need to talk to people. You know, if, if I haven't pitched this to anyone, I'm taking theoretical feedback from people who are not looking to put the hand in the pocket. It won't, it won't really go very far. And that process is pretty scary. You know, the whole process is pretty scary because you're not selling someone else's product in there. You're selling, you're selling you, you know, you're selling your livelihood, your time, uh, your reputation, lots and lots of other things to the point where we were offered funding um, from one organization and we decided to turn them down based on their valuation of what we were doing. And at the time, that was the first offer we had. Uh, which is terrifying. You know, you're stood there saying no to someone dangling a few hundred thousand pounds at you saying, no, I think we can do better, which takes some kahunis. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that part of, part of the process. So you came through it 
with uh, with a great result and ended up with private equity investment with Hatch. Yeah. 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 How's that relationship developed? So it's still developing in fairness. So the way those guys work are they basically give you a number of months to start deploying the capital, start working out what you're doing and essentially just leave you alone a little bit, which we've really appreciated the breathing room. Now, in truth, if if we were where we wanted to be with the Innovate UK side of things, I think we'd have been able to pull on them quite a lot quicker. Instead, what we said is, look, we'll we'll ask you for support here give us a bit of breathing room and then come it's actually we're, we're meeting in about two weeks which is all about that's like, how we do we pull from their own expertise and what do we do with that from those guys essentially which which we've really appreciated because they've been very accommodating for that side of things equally if there's anything we want or they can help with they're a slack message a phone call text message away uh, and we've learned that quite quickly so ultimately a vc as much as they are you know, a, a different beast, and there's that mythical beast we were talking about with with lots of teeth. Once invested in you, you're you're their ongoing concern. They want you to succeed. Uh, they have absolutely no interest in you failing. Um, they're not going to make it difficult for you. They're only going to make it difficult if you're not doing something right. And then, to be quite honest, you should probably listen to what they've got to say because they do lots and lots of these things all the time. So yeah, the, for us, it's been very good. Yeah, I mean, I remember working through with you the the selection criteria when you started to get some traction to get some offers. You know, one of the questions I ask is, you know, other than money, what do you want from these guys? Yeah. And I think being really clear about that and, and how they can help you and how they can add value to you, your board, your decision making yeah. is a key component of what you're looking for as a startup because it can be a very lonely place being the yeah, CEO. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it is. We we're very lucky uh, internally. So the, the three founders have, we've very much struck a very good balance, which is we all kind of own our own verticals and will cross-reference. We all have full autonomy in each of those, but we also seek to kind of get affirmation or confirmation of, of how people want to work and what's the best proof. So we've got a really nice way of working, uh, which helps as well. So question. If you were mentoring a somebody who's just starting out and setting up their own company, what, what would be the key piece of advice that you would give them? I think you have to start looking at perseverance. You know, at the end of the day, these things do not happen overnight. They might do for a very, 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 very small portion of people. But you need to have crystal clear your vision and weirdly expect that vision to change dramatically <laughs> in, in very quickly but persevere you know if you think you've got something and you truly believe that and it's been validated by other people not always not always relevant you know having it validated by other people i still speak to people now and they say electric vehicles are not going to go anywhere that's fine but you know they're they're the ones currently queuing up at petrol pumps in in the uk um but yeah, I think I think it is. It's, it's perseverance and learning and and making sure that you're you're listening. You know, something that something I was taught sounds very simple, but something I, I was taught at uh, United Biscuits. <laughs> Obviously, it, it was a reflection of what I was doing at the time. Was you have one mouth and two ears. Use that proportion when you start thinking about speaking versus listening. I think it's wise advice. I think if I was going to add anything to it, it would be think consciously about mm. who you need to have those conversations with. Yeah, where where you can go and get 
knowledge, expertise, insight. It's a very connected world these days. Mm. And you can actually spend a lot of time having a lot of conversations which aren't adding value. Oh, yeah, every day. Yeah, I, 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 I watch, especially in the world I'm in at the moment, I watch um, essentially lots of people on LinkedIn, as an example, just high-fiving each other. They're all from the same industry. None of them are buying off each other. And they're all congratulating each other just constantly. And, and it's, you know, they're all on the same panels. They're all talking to the same audience. To me, that's not that relevant. All you're doing is validating in your echo chamber. Um, so find, you know, to, to add to what you're saying, uh, find someone that is, is probably your customer. You know, the skeptical customer is the one that you want to listen to the most. Your unhappy customer, if you can find that person, gives you the most learning and understanding versus someone that goes, yeah, I love it. Because <laughs> you're like, great, I'm doing everything right then. Insight. Insight, absolutely, yeah. That's what you're looking for. Fantastic. Just to yeah, wrap up, uh, I've got my, my quick fire questions. Go for it. What are the three most important attributes that have fueled your success personally? Personally, so I'll pull one from what I said earlier. So perseverance, I think, um, especially through COVID, has been has been no easy feat. Learning, I mean, there's a very easy thing from a from a startup position, from a CEO position, whatever you want to call it, uh, of thinking you know what what there is to be known, uh, especially when you become an expert in the space. So for me, I've always just had one ear open, which is you know always be always be open to listening. You know, learning and listening in that space is so, so, so crucial. Um, and then my third one is really about feedback. So it's all a very similar concept and similar theme. So feedback for me has been, a, to be cheesy, a gift. You know, I, I was taught that, again, feedback is a gift and, and never turn it down. Feedback can be really hard to listen to, but typically you will be better off for listening to that and reacting to that somehow. Or at least if you're not reacting, being mindful of whatever that is so perseverance listening and feedback exactly a lot of people say some of their deepest learning has come from from adversity or failure what what's been perhaps you know the biggest mistake you've made and and what have you learned from it yeah so i think this is probably an answer of two sides so one mistake but it's more of a mindset is thinking it would be an easy process you know in your head everything slots in but in terms of an actual experience that i feel has i feel has been a failure it actually hasn't in in hindsight but it's been our software the software we had the opportunity to bring that to market you know towards the start of this year and unfortunately due to different things we've been delayed with it now i found that as a failure because of you know market forces all that sort of stuff but it did give me lots of insight and lots of concepts about what you should do. So, you know, to build on, on your quick fire question a moment ago in terms of what you would recommend and all that sort of stuff, um, bring, if you can bring your software in-house, it's such a big learning, you know, to, to try, and, try and articulate what you want from an external team is close to impossible unless you're asking them to build an e-commerce site that's kind of, you know, normal and there's thousands of them because it's just a carbon copy um, and then as a result early funding is pretty key you know if you haven't got the funding to do that there's something missing so if you try and bootstrap it 
if you've got the means to do it, fantastic. Go on and, and go forth. But for the majority of people, they won't have. Um, grants are amazing, <laughs> but you know, with, with peril as well. Take them, take it at your own risk. Inspiration. Where, where do you get yours from? So uh, it's, it's an interesting one. This because my my inspiration has changed over the years. Uh, I, I, obviously, you you told me you were going to ask me this question. I'll give that away. But that was a really good thing for me because it made me think about what that inspiration is. And if you asked John twenty years or ten years ago, whatever, it would be you know the big CEO sat in the tower with a very expensive car, billion quid in the bank. The truth is, over a working career, what I've realised is what they've sacrificed to get to that. And by not striking the balance and you know, just going for money, for an example, just absolutely does not inspire me in the slightest. So I've now got to a position where I think the it's still a successful business leader, but it's those that had great ideas, got ahead of the time, but also managed to make the balance, friends, family, all that sort of stuff along the way, because that's really hard to do. Uh, it's hard to do at my level right now, let alone um, when you've got hundreds of people working for your thousands of people and big investors and all that sort of stuff. That's a really interesting answer. Probably leading on to that then is what's the mantra that you that that you live with? I'd say two things: never burn bridges. The amount of times that I have had interesting conversations with an individual that you, you don't necessarily want to come across again. And they happen to pop up in your timeline somewhere else, unless you have a really good reason for it. There's no need. <laughs> so don't never burn a bridge. And also something that I've always uh, had in me is treat others as how you want to be treated. Uh, ultimately, no one is going to work to do a bad job. No one is usually going out of their way to be an arsehole or whatever it is to you <laughs> specifically. Most people will treat you with respect if, they, if, if uh, they're treated with respect. Behaviour breeds behaviour. It does. Yeah, completely. And the last one, what, what's the, the next big goal? Yeah, I, th- I think the next big goal will be a bigger funding raise. Um, it, it's the scale-up monies that you want to get to. We've, we've got a really interesting opportunity, which is we'll be able to get to a profitable point quite quickly. The problem with that is it doesn't really give you the resources to then scale. So it comes of two points, which is, or three points really, Come to that profitability point, which we're on track for. Get to the point where you start needing more more bodies, and then you've got a really good, perfect storm to then get higher investment, all that sort of stuff, which then leads you to that scaling position. I'm just conscious before we close. I haven't really invited you to explain what the customer proposition is for Diode, what Diode does, what where it fits in the marketplace, and also if people are interested because it is a very topical subject, a topical space where they can find out more information. Yeah, perfect. Uh, So what Diode is doing is essentially helping people transition to electric, um, electric vehicles, that is. What we do is we use data. So we work with partners, and that might be a leasing company. That leasing company will have customers of their own. So let's say business A. Business A will have 100 employees. All of those 100 employees are potential people that may switch to an electric vehicle, either through private ownership, salary sacrifice, um, products through their company, company cars, or their fleet vehicle. What we do is we help them understand what that transition would look like by essentially asking them a series of questions and pulling some data out of, uh, of the, their answers. 
once we have that data position, essentially we've created a consumption model for any individual person. So that means we can say to you, from a, a vehicle point of view, these are the sorts of vehicles that would be interesting for you. From a mileage, range point of view, um, this is your access to charging, these are your driving behaviors. We also aggregate that for the business and tell them what infrastructure they need for their business uh, over a period of time. So let's say three years. The final point of this process, we then allow them to purchase those, their charging infrastructure to support that transition. So um, that can be either commercial charging or business charge, sorry, commercial charging or domestic charging uh, through a, a, just a portal that then go through. Um, and if you would like to find out more, uh, if you go to diode.energy, that will tell you everything you need. Excellent. So it's really speaking to any business that has a significant number of employees and therefore vehicles. Mm that hasn't yet figured out how they transition their their, their fleet from uh, petrochemicals to electric. Exactly, yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, we're seeing many companies, um, not even with a significant, you know, defined significant, I guess, amount of employees, but essentially everyone has the same issue, which is they don't understand what they need, they don't understand what infrastructure they need or what vehicles they need. Um, we've designed it so if you're a one-man band up to 10,000 employees, you can use the service, uh, the pricing scale, so it, it helps you along, along the route, essentially. So it gives them the information and helps them develop an action plan and also can help them with the execution of that plan mm -hmm. in terms of actually putting the infrastructure in place. Absolutely, yeah. It's a good summary. I might steal that one. <laughs> cool. Listen, John, it's been great having you on the show. Really appreciate your time. And very best of luck with, with the future for Diode and the team. I really uh, hope you're going to smash it and leads on to much bigger and greater things. Thanks a lot. It's been great chatting.